From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Today, Steven Spielberg. His new film, The Fablemans, is based on his childhood and teenage years, when he fell in love with movies. The very first movie he ever saw both enchanted and terrified him. But the man who made Jaws admits a lot of things scared him as a kid. Everything. (laughs) There was nothing that didn't scare me. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of this horrible, scary, uh, naked tree out the window that looked like it had tentacles. See these horrible branches, and it looked like arms and long fingers and long fingernails. The tree terrified me. Sound familiar? That tree would later show up in his movie Poltergeist, dragging a boy from his bed and out the window. Also, historian Matthew Delmont talks about the experience of African Americans in World War II. And Maureen Corrigan reviews Foster, a novella by Irish writer Claire Keegan. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. Here she is. My guest today is Steven Spielberg. It's a great time to interview him because his new movie, The Fablemans, is a personal one. He says all his movies are personal in the sense they come from his experiences, observations, and imagination. But this one is personal in a more direct way. The Fablemans is a semi-autobiographical film based on Spielberg's childhood and teenage years and tells the story in a fictionalized way of how he fell in love with movies and became a filmmaker. The movie is also about tensions in his family during those years and why his parents divorced when he was 19. Spielberg has directed over 30 movies, including Jaws, E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the Indiana Jones films, The Color Purple, Jurassic Park, Schindler's List, Amistad, Saving Private Ryan, Lincoln, and the recent adaptation of West Side Story. His movies have grossed more at the box office than any filmmaker. And as Michael Schulman wrote in The New Yorker, Spielberg has shaped nearly half a century of the American popular imagination. Steven Spielberg, welcome to Fresh Air. I'm so glad we have this opportunity to talk. I wasn't sure I'd ever have that opportunity to talk with you. And congratulations on this film, which I really enjoyed. Um, Let's start with The Greatest Show on Earth. It's a circus movie with some very disturbing things in it. And I'll preface this by saying the first movie I ever saw was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I was probably around six, the same age you were when you saw The Greatest Show on Earth. And I walked, we walked in late, which people used to do at that time. And the first thing I saw was Kirk Douglas wrestling with an octopus underwater. And I was terrified. And I begged my mother to just take me home. (laughs) So tell us about what terrified you about The Greatest Show on Earth, a circus movie directed by uh, Cecil B. DeMille. Well, first of all, you know, I I sympathize with you. Um, I, too, saw 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with James Mason and Kirk Douglas and Peter Lorre. And and um, uh, and that sequence with the giant squid attacking the Nautilus was terrifying, especially because they were cutting the tentacles off with axes, and that was pretty gruesome <laughs> in those days. And I remember that. But I was older when I saw that movie, but I was only six years old when I saw when my parents took me to The Greatest Show on Earth, and they, they thought it was going to be a great picture having to do with circus clowns and three rings of entertainment. And, you know, and it was, I actually thought they were saying to me, we're taking you to a circus, because I had never been to a movie before. We had television at home, but I had never been to a motion picture. 
And um, and I thought what they meant to say was, you're going to actually see giraffes and elephants and lions and tigers. And what happened was we waited in line for hours in the freezing winter, and then we walked into this big theater with all these seats facing forward, and it was not a big top, it wasn't a tent, it was just a structure. And I just remember as a kid looking around, and it was all these seats. Remember the color of the seats? They were red, and uh, the curtain was red. And then suddenly this curtain opens, and this big, grainy image in color comes up on the screen. Um, and I felt very betrayed. My first reaction was, you said you were taking me to a circus. And, and, and this movie started playing. And I don't know how long it took me to fall in under the spell of the film. And I was enchanted. I, I remember just being enchanted by, didn't understand the story, didn't understand what they were saying. But the imagery was amazing. But then along came this horrible train crash. And the train wreck was terrifying. And I wanted to leave the theater like you did with, uh, you know, with 20,000 leagues. And I was knocking on my parents' shoulders. I wanted to get, I was sinking as low as I could get in, the, in my seat so as not to see the screen. But it was a really terrifying, traumatic thing. And, uh, and it never left me. My first movie was a movie that scared my pants off. And I'll never forget that. So in your semi-autobiographical film, after seeing that movie, um, Sammy, who's your alter ego in the film, um, starts to recreate what terrified him with Lionel toy trains and you know, crashing into things. Um, and then he starts filming scenes like that. Uh, why did you want to recreate something that was most terrifying? Like, I wanted to just forget 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which obviously I haven't done. <laughs> but why did you want to keep creating it? Well, you know, I, 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 I don't know, because remember, I'm a, I'm a kid, and I think that when I saw that movie for the first time, and I had a Lionel electric train set, and by actually uh, crashing the train into things and watching the train derail and watching the, the passenger cars and a couple of boxcars and a caboose pile up, I was able to, I think, intuitively rest back control of my fear. And I really think it helped assuage the fear. It helped me get in, 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 in total control over it. So I was the one uh, causing something that was going to maybe have a chance to scare other people, but no longer myself. And the idea of taking my dad's little Kodak Brownie eight millimeter movie camera and filming it was only because I kept wrecking the trains, crashing them into things, and my dad and mom threatened to take the train set away. So the idea of using a camera to film it, that I could watch the film over and over again, and it would essentially, um, you know, it would calm me down. What else were you afraid of as a child? Everything. <laughs> there was nothing that didn't scare me. I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of this horrible New Jersey, this horrible, scary... A naked tree out the window that looked like it had tentacles, you know, and it, it looked like these horrible branches and it looked like arms and long fingers and long fingernails and the tree terrified me. Um, later, as an adult, I when, I when I wrote Poltergeist, I created a tree out the window that actually comes to life and grabs a kid and starts to suck him into one of its knot holes, its sappy knot holes, and, and that was a direct steal from that tree out my window that scared me. I was afraid of the dark. 
I was, you know, I was, I was afraid of small places, and I still am today. I'm very claustrophobic. But I was a fearful kid. And my parents didn't quite know what to do with that because my mom was fearless and my dad was extremely stoic about things like this. And no amount of uh, bedside chats could calm me down once the sun set. And I went to bed and my parents turned the lights off. And, um, and the only solace I guess I had was they allowed the door to my bedroom to, to be cracked an inch or two. So I had that little comfort of a hall light coming in. And that was about it. Among the things you're famous for is, you know, movies and TV about World War II, including, of course, Saving Private Ryan and, and, and Schindler's List. I mean, World War II was terrifying. And you depicted one of the most terrifying aspects of it, which was D-Day um, in Saving Private Ryan. Um, do you see that as a continuation of what you did when you were a young boy, making little films about things that terrified you, like the recreating the train crash scene from The Greatest Show on Earth? Well, you know, there was a lot. I was very much in those days when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, being influenced by television. And, you know, and there were a lot of movies on The Late Show. You get The Late Show, you get The Late Late Show, you get things called Million Dollar Movie back in Phoenix. And I was very influenced by all the war movies they were showing, the John Wayne films like The Fighting Seabees. And coupled with the fact that my dad was from the greatest generation, he was a veteran of World War II. He fought in the China, Burma, India, the CBI campaign. And my dad told me stories about World War II constantly. So I, I, I made eight millimeter war movies, Escape to Nowhere, which I depict in The Fablemans is an actual movie I made when I was about 16 years old called Escape to Nowhere. And because I was really obsessed with, with war, I made a World War II um, Air Force movie called Fighter Squadron in black and white when I was about 14 years old. And so, so that just came out of my sort of fascination with what I was watching on television or the stories my dad was telling me. So when your father told you stories and when his friends who were also veterans told you stories, were they stories about like heroism, uh, about, you know, bonding with, with fellow soldiers, or were they stories about the horrors of, of war? Well, you know, sometimes it was the things I was just sort of eavesdropping about. Sometimes my dad would have reunions with other members of his fighter squadron and the 490th squadron. He, he, uh, and they'd come over to the house sometimes uh, uh, once every couple of years, and there'd be seven or eight guys together. And I'd be wandering in and out of my room or going into the kitchen, but I'd hear some of their stories and talking. And the thing that was most disturbing for me was all of a sudden a grown man would fold over sobbing and my dad and everybody else would surround and tap tap the pat the person on the back and try to get a glass of water and there would be you know tears from you know it's it's unusual when you're a kid and you you hear in your own home adults sobbing and and whatever they were sobbing about it would it was only years later that I found out that the PTSD that came out of that war was causing and that's why it was so healthy for these veterans to get together uh about once every couple of years. So when, when you were growing up, there was still a draft. And you when you were of draft age, there was still a draft. What did you think? I mean, you're of the Vietnam War generation. So when you were eligible for the draft and stood the chance of being sent to Vietnam, whether you wanted to go or not, what did you think about the possibility of actually fighting in a war? I, I was... 
I would never have gone to Canada, but I tried everything I could not to be drafted, even though I was subjected to two or three physicals. Um, I kept taking physicals because I had a draft counselor, and the draft counselor had advised me how to delay, uh, you know, I was 1A. Um, I was not doing good in college. 1A meant that you were, like, next up on the list. I had a, I had a student deferment. A 2S deferment, as a lot of us had, most of us had. But um, when my grades dropped below a certain level, I lost my 2S deferment, became 1A, and was ordered up on my first physical. Um, my second physical, actually. My first physical, I was, in high, I was in high school, a senior in high school, just turned 18, up in Northern California, and I was standing in line in a rainstorm outside to watch Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. And I was standing in the Dr. Strangelove live, line, and I hear a horn honking, and I recognize my dad's car, and he's parked on the curb right opposite the theater. It was in San Jose, and he's waving me over, and I run over to the car, and I jump in the car, and he hands me a letter from the Selective Service. And it was a letter that's, that, that was ordering me to report to have my first physical. And... And I'll tell you the power of movies, Terry, which is really interesting. I was terrified. I, I, that letter was a, like a death warrant. And my dad was going to drive me home, and I said, no, 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 i got to see this movie. And I had the letter, and I put the letter in my back pocket and ran back in line, and, and I saw the movie, and 10 minutes into the movie, I forgot that my father had handed me what could, could have been my death warrant, that's what that Kubrick film did for me. It took my mind off of anything except that story of Armageddon. And that was another example of just the power of somebody telling me a story. Yeah, well, and the story that took your mind off having to fight in war was a story about possible nuclear war and <laughs> all the things that could go, go wrong and lead to it. So it's funny that that was distracting you from the possibility of going to war yourself. So, so how did you finally get out of being drafted? Well, because something called the lottery uh, was enacted. I was in college at the time, and they were announcing the lottery, and we all ran to a friend's uh, apartment, about 15, maybe 20 of us, and we turned on the TV and we watched the numbers come out of the drum. And my birthday, my number was 275. So right away, I was off the hook, but suddenly a number would come up for somebody else. It was number 19, and that person would start screaming and burst into tears, and, and then another number would come over that was on, on the bubble, like 110, and you didn't know whether that was going to be, be, be the number that sent you to Vietnam. Um, but that was quite a day. I'll never forget that. Steven Spielberg speaking with Terry Gross. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break, and Maureen Corrigan will review Foster, a novella by Irish writer Claire Keegan. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Steven Spielberg. His new film, The Fablemans, is based on the story of how he became obsessed with watching movies and making them when he was a boy. It's also a story based on his family and his parents' divorce. Part of your new movie is about, you know, growing up Jewish, and when you moved to a, a largely Gentile suburb of California facing anti-Semitism at school. I know you lost over 15 relatives in the Holocaust who were, you know, relatives who were still in Europe. And your grandmother taught English to Holocaust survivors. 
in America, and you knew Holocaust survivors who had numbers tattooed on their arms from their days in concentration camps and death camps. And you've said that's how you learned to count. That's how you learned math. How did that work? Well, it's not how I learned math. It's how I learned my numbers. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a very kind of perverse version of Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> where I'd be sitting at these tables. I was just a kid. I was like three years old. It was back in Cincinnati. We didn't move to, we didn't move to um, uh, um, New Jersey until I was it, it, probably three, four years old. And I just remember sitting around the table and a lot of very, very old people. And these people probably weren't very old. They were probably in their 30s or early 40s. But when you're a little kid, Anybody who looks thirty or forty looks like they're on the on death's doorstep, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and they were old, and they were speaking. They were mainly speaking um, either Yiddish or they were speaking German or they were speaking Hungarian, mainly Hungarian. And I but I didn't know it then what the languages were. Later, my mom and dad told me what the languages were. It was mainly Hungarian, and um, my grandmother would teach them. English. She was teaching them how to, how to, they resettled in this country and they were learning English. My grandmother was their English teacher. And there was, it was, she was teaching a class in the Cincinnati house, maybe, you know, a large dining room table filled with survivors. And one man in particular, I kept looking at his, his numbers, his, his number tattooed on his forearm. And he started, you know, when, when during the dinner break, when everybody was eating and not learning, he would point to the numbers and he would say, that is a two and that is a four. And then he'd say, and, and this is a, a eight and that's a one. And then I'll never forget this. And he said, and that's a nine. And then he crooked his arm and inverted his arm and said, and see, it becomes a six. It's magic. And now it's a nine and now it's a six. And now it's a nine and now it's a six. And that's really how I learned my numbers for the first time. And the irony of all that and the gift of that lesson never really dawned on me until I was much older. Did you understand at the time that those numbers were basically the ID numbers tattooed on arms because the Jews were not humans to the Nazis and they were just going to be worked to death or just, you know, put in ovens. And so this is just like um, the math to keep count of them and identify them. Did you understand the horror of that when you were learning math on their arms? No, I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know who they were. And I'm sure you don't sit a three-year-old kid down and explain the Holocaust to them. Uh, there was no way I'd be able to comprehend anything. Um, uh, there was only years later that I had these recollections and my mom and my grandparents would fill me in with what those days were like. Um, you said that when you were growing up, you were afraid of everything. Once you learned about the Holocaust and realized that you'd been, you know, um, in contact with so many Holocaust survivors, did the whole idea of the Holocaust, uh, like, terrify you and haunt you? And did you worry about something like that ever happening again? You know, the first time I really became, my parents talked a lot about the Holocaust, but it was never called the Holocaust. They never referred to it as the Shoah. They always called it the great murders. They referred to the Holocaust as the great murders. And as a kid, that's a very dramatic thing to hear, great murders. Um, and there's only so much a story can do to scare a child. But imagery is a powerful, powerful kind of um, bracing way of shocking you into realization of some kind. And they actually wield a 16-millimeter projector 
I believe, into our sixth or seventh grade classrooms in Phoenix, Arizona. And they showed us a 45 minute or so, maybe an hour long black and white documentary called The Twisted Cross. And it was the first time I ever saw imagery of death. I had never seen a dead body until that documentary was shown to my class and uh, stacked up like cordwood, you know. And I'll just never forget, I was, I was repulsed and I was, I was terrified. And I really, when I came home that day, told my parents what they had shown us. And that was the first time after all the dis dinner table discussions about the great murders and who we lost, that was the first time it was a film that got me really to realize that something had happened that would change, you know, that would change me forever. How did it change you? I became obsessed with learning more about it. And Schindler's List was the, the culmination of all of the interest that from the seventh grade I had just been obsessed with it. Nothing was being taught. Nothing was being shown. There were no movies made of it. I remember my parents went to see The Pawnbroker and they didn't take me and I really wanted to see it. And they said it was too intense for me and didn't want me to see it. And there was, so there were a couple things done about the Holocaust, not many, but The Pawnbroker that I later saw, that was, I wish I had seen it when, when my parents saw it. That, that, that would have been a profound experience for me. Um, and it was just, and not a lot was being, being written about the Holocaust either. And we didn't have access to the books that were, were that had been written, you know, and so it was not until I was really in my, I would say, 30s, that there was more and more written about the Holocaust, and I started reading everything I could. Um, part of what your film is about is, you know, growing up Jewish. Um, you grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. What did that mean? Did your family keep kosher, go to synagogue on days that were not the High Holy Days, uh, observe the Sabbath? What, what did it mean in, in practical terms? Yeah, Terry, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family only when my grandparents were visiting our home. <laughs> the second they went back to Cincinnati, Ohio, the lobster and the clams came back in, the milk and the fleshic, the meat and the milk was being mixed. Um, everything changed. So I kind of grew up in a kind of hypocrisy of, of, of really being conservative to reform Jews, but orthodox when it was convenient and when it was not going to get my mom and dad in trouble. You use the word hypocrisy. Um, I mean, you are still very Jewish, and I don't know if that means mostly culturally Jewish or, you know, observant Jewish because, you know, a lot of Jewish people are more cultural than observant in their identification with Judaism. Well, I, you know, I, you know, for a long time I was in denial that I was Jewish when I was especially in elementary school and part of high school because it, it was alienating to, to identify and to declare yourself as being Jewish. I never really denied I was Jewish. But I try to make myself as tiny as possible when that conversation came up in the schoolyard. Um, certainly, I identified inside being, you know, in a family, in a large family growing up in Arizona. I identified culturally because we observed all the high holy days and we observed all the, you know, the, the smaller uh, Jewish holidays. And when my grandparents were there, there was a lot of uh, Russian and, and Yiddish uh, spoken in our home because my grandparents were from Ukraine. 
and I'm second-generation Ukrainian. And um, so there was a devout kind of educational aspect of my life when they would be in town, and, and they were in town a lot, and so we were orthodox a lot and kosher a lot. And then, as I said, when they went away, we weren't kosher anymore. Steven Spielberg, thank you so much, and um, continue to make movies that give us so much kind of pleasure and also pain. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. This was a pleasure for me. Steven Spielberg speaking with Terry Gross. His new movie is The Fablemans. A 2010 novella by the Irish writer Claire Keegan called Foster has an unusual publishing history. Our book critic Maureen Corrigan says the long wait for Foster to be available in book form in the U.S. is finally over. Here's her review. In terms of productivity, the Irish writer Claire Keegan is the anti-Joyce Carol Oates. Since 1999, when her first short story collection Antarctica appeared, Keegan has published only one subsequent story collection and two novellas. But the accolades for her writing far outweigh its sparsity. Keegan's 2020 novella, for instance, called Small Things Like These, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. At 116 pages, the slimmest work of fiction ever to be nominated. Size matters, but wallop matters more. So far, the only thing lengthy about Keegan's work is how long it's taken for Foster, her first novella, to be published in book form in the United States. Foster first appeared as a long short story in 2010 in The New Yorker and then was published in Great Britain. It's already been canonized as one of the top 50 novels of the 21st century by The Times of London. Now at last, Grove Press has published a standalone edition of Foster here. It's a classy hardback that's oddly bulked out at its end by the first two chapters of Small Things Like These, the kind of teaser that's usually attached to the end of paperback thrillers. Then again, Keegan is a writer who revels in the suspense of the unspoken, the held breath. Foster, in fact, ends on just such a petrified moment. The events Foster chronicles are small in scope. One Sunday after Mass, a young girl who remains nameless tells us she's taken by her father to a far-off farm. The girl's mother is pregnant, and there are other children in the family, so she's sent off to live for the summer with strangers— my mother's people, she tells us, a couple called the Kinsellas. We readers only get the girl's limited perspective. None of the adults explains much to her, and the girl's father especially is a man of few words. The ones he does speak are cutting. Driving off from the farm, he bids farewell to his daughter by saying, Try not to fall into the fire, you. Fortunately, the Kinsellas, though reserved, are gentle. The woman, whose name we later learn is Edna, bathes the unkempt girl, gives her clean hand-me-downs to wear, and teaches her how to do things. Together, they embark on a repetitive round of daily chores. 
pull rhubarb, make tarts, paint the skirting boards, take all the bedclothes out of the hot press and hoover out the spider webs. The girl begins to relax. Her reflexive flinching eases. The austere style and measured pacing of Foster are perfect. We readers may wonder about the presence in a closet of those hand-me-down children's clothes, but another chore always awaits, deflecting attention. Occasionally, the news intrudes on this timeless round— One of the few markers that ties this tale to the early 1980s is the mention of the death of a hunger striker. Weeks pass. Then the Kinsellas have to take the girl with them to a neighbor's wake. Recognizing that the crowded house with its kitchen centerpiece of an open casket is no place for the child, they gratefully accept when a woman they know named Mildred offers to bring the girl back to her house for a while. Mildred whisks the child away, and Foster arrives at the kind of signal moment that distinguishes much of Keegan's fiction, that is, a scene in which the cunning humiliate the kind. The girl tells us that, upon leaving the wake, Mildred strides on into a pace I can just about keep, and as soon as she rounds the bend, the questions start. She is eaten alive with curiosity. Which room did they put you into? Did Kinsella give you money? How much? Does she drink at night? Does he? Does she put butter or margarine in her pastry? The girl is frozen into fear and silence. Frustrated, nosy Mildred lashes out at her, saying, That must have been some stone they rolled back to find you. Keegan has a sharp ear for mundane meanness, but she has an even keener appreciation for kindness and its complications. The girl must return home at the end of the summer to parents who haven't once been in contact. Is it a gift or a shattering cruelty to expose a child to a better life when that life may only be temporary? As Keegan knows, only the Mildreds of the world will have a ready answer to that and all the other moral questions this matchless novella raises. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Foster by Claire Keegan. Coming up, historian Matthew Delmont will talk about the experience of African Americans in World War II. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. When you see movies about World War II and photos of Allied campaigns against the Axis powers, the American military personnel depicted are almost entirely white. But more than a million black men and women served in World War II— fighting at Normandy, Iwo Jima, and the Battle of the Bulge, and serving in support roles that were critical to the Allies' success. Our guest, historian Matthew F. Delmont, has a new book about the African-American experience in World War II, and it isn't limited to their contributions to the war effort. Delmont describes the discrimination black Americans faced in the military and in civilian defense industries, and the brutality many black servicemen suffered when stationed near white communities that resented their presence. Delmont writes that African Americans didn't receive many of the benefits Congress bestowed on service members in the GI Bill, but many were energized and enlightened by their experiences in the war and later became active in the civil rights movement. 
Matthew Delmont is the Sherman Fairchild Distinguished Professor of History at Dartmouth College. He's the author of four previous books and has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and other publications. His new book is Half American, the epic story of African Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Matthew Delmont, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the military in 1940 as the United States was about to embark on on this war. You know, black soldiers had served in the U.S. Army in Europe during World War I. But you write about a report by the Army War College issued in 1925 called The Use of Negro Manpower in War, which I drew on that experience presumably. What did it say? It said a series of extraordinarily racist and scientifically wrong things. And so part of understanding this larger history is that black Americans have served in the military in every uh, conflict that the U.S. has ever been a part of. So going all the way back well before the Civil War, uh, more than 300,000 served in World War I. But between World War I and World War II, uh, the U.S. military does almost everything they can to push black Americans out of the military. And part of it is that report you just mentioned, this Army War College report from 1925, it goes through and lists a series of, of claims about black Americans in terms of their uh, courage, bravery, intelligence, or in the, the military's case, their, their belief that black Americans lack these attributes, that they lack what it takes to be soldiers and that they lack what it takes to be, to be officers. They're drawing on racial pseudoscience of the time. So there's claims that black Americans have a smaller cranial capacity, that they don't have uh, the same intelligence to be able to, to serve in the military. And then it makes claims about the poor performance of black troops during World War I um, that were, were not true, but once they got written down, these racist beliefs got passed from one generation of white officers to the next generation. And so what was so troubling about reading this report is that this was the uh, official stance of the U.S. military on the worthiness of black Americans to be able to serve in the military. It wasn't just a handful of isolated racist individuals. This was the official opinion of, of the military leaders that was being uh, taught at places like West Point. And so that really influenced the kind of um, opportunities and treatment that black Americans had once they uh, entered the military for World War II. Yeah, you know, we wouldn't expect, you know, a material from 1925 to be particularly enlightened, but this is pretty Wild stuff here. The report reads in part, the Negro is profoundly superstitious. He is by nature subservient and naturally believes himself inferior to the white. The Negro is unmoral. He simply does not see that certain things are wrong. Well, that's pretty poisonous stuff to be spread throughout the command ranks, isn't it? It was terrible. Um, and it really influenced how the military thought about the capacities of everyday black Americans once they volunteered or got drafted into service. Because when that report's written, it takes the racist assumptions of a generation of white officers from World War I and then passes it on to that next generation of white officers, almost all of whom serve in World War II. And so it had a really uh, damning impact on, on black Americans and their opportunities in the military. So if we go to 1940, I mean, the United States is not in the war yet, but, but you know, France, Germany are engaged in the conflict after the, the Germans invaded Poland. And Roosevelt really wants to get the United States to support the European allies here. And, and they, Congress organized the selective service system, a draft. And it's interesting that it included anti-discrimination provisions, but they didn't exactly work. I mean, what, what was the status of black Americans who wanted to serve in the military in practice? How did it work out? In practice, uh, the Selective Service Draft didn't work to the benefit of black Americans because the military didn't have enough units 
in which to place uh, black draftees or black volunteers. And so it's important to understand in the lead up to the U.S. entering World War II, uh, black newspaper editors, civil rights activists have to actively fight just to make sure black Americans have a chance to serve their country. It seems almost crazy to imagine that as America's preparing to join the Allies and fighting this massive global war, that black Americans actually had to, to push their way into, into military service. The entire military is segregated at this point. Um, at the start of the war, the Marine Corps doesn't allow any black Americans to serve, and both the Army and, and Navy are segregated. And so the first battle that black Americans have to fight is really just getting their foot in the door to even have a chance to take on meaningful roles in the military. And it's these, these quotas that the, the military has that keeps uh, a lot of black Americans out. Well, as more black soldiers were inducted into the military as the United States got involved in the war and manpower needs were great, many of these African-American soldiers were sent for training to camps in the South where you know they might have hoped that showing their patriotism and wearing the the uniform of the military would get them some respect or at least tolerance. Not always the case, was it? No, it wasn't. And reading some of the accounts of these black troops once they got sent to these southern bases is, is harrowing, uh, particularly for those who came from outside the South. So they would tell stories of boarding trains in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. And then as soon as they got to the demarcation points in the South, Washington, D.C., or other cities, they were forced to move to the segregated train cars because they had to comply with Jim Crow policies. Once they pulled into these southern towns, they described having to pull down the shades on the train cars so that white townspeople wouldn't throw rocks at the, at the trains because they were so upset at the idea of black servicemen coming into these communities. Once they got to the bases, their experience was that they had extraordinary amounts of racism both on the bases and in the communities that surrounded them. Uh, they described um, being called boy or by their first name by officers rather than by their rank or last name as would be the normal military custom. Racial epithets were part of everyday life. And then violence and, and threats of violence was part of their daily life on these bases. When they had a chance to leave the bases and go into the small surrounding towns for recreation, they were cordoned off into one or two block areas in the black sections of town. If they stepped even a foot outside of that, uh, they were threatened or attacked by white police or sheriffs. Things got so bad that these troops were writing letters to the NAACP and to the black press saying, we've got to get out of here. That they, they said that a war is being fought at home uh, before they even have a chance to go abroad. They said that they would be safer and they looked forward to being deployed to the European theater or the Pacific theater because they thought they would actually be safer there in war zones than they were in Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia. And so it's a, an aspect of the history of World War II that we don't typically talk about, but it was the, the introduction for hundreds of thousands of black Americans to what it meant to be in the service of their country. You know, you're right that in the Navy, a lot of the, the black men who were serving served as messmen. That is, that is to say they worked in the galley preparing food and serving stuff. They were subservient roles, really. Um, what did you learn about how they were treated? So among all the branches, the, the treatment of black men in the Navy was uh, among the worst, at least described by, by black troops and by, by black veterans. In large part because that was the role they were assigned to. They were assigned to these roles as mess attendants where they essentially waited on and served white officers. Within the culture of the Navy, um, these were seen as extraordinarily subservient roles, and that's how the mess attendants were typically treated aboard ships. But what was interesting to me once I got into the research was that part of the rationale that the Navy had for assigning black troops these roles was that they thought this was the only way to make sure that the ships... Um, 
racial politics did not become upset and that they didn't think these black men had what it took to be in combat roles on these Navy ships. But of course, when you're on a, a ship or a submarine and you're at war and Japanese or German uh, submarines start firing torpedoes at, at your ship, you're in combat, even if you're a mess attendant. And some of, some of the most inspiring stories that come out of this are that black men who are in these mess attendant roles actually take on really important roles in combat. During the Battle of Pearl Harbor, for example, uh, there's the famous messman uh, Dory Miller, Doris Miller, who, even though he has no training on the ship's weapons, goes above board once the attack starts, grabs one of the, the anti-aircraft guns on, on his ship, the West Virginia, and starts firing back against these, these Japanese bombers. There's similar stories. Another man named um, Julius Ellsbury, who was the first uh, person from Birmingham, Alabama, to get killed in the war. He was at Pearl Harbor. Uh, later in the war, there are other mess, mess attendants who perform bravely in, uh, in combat situations. And so it's a strange paradox within the Navy that the Navy insists that black men don't have the ability to perform in combat, yet consistently... There are evidence and records in black newspapers and elsewhere that describe black men doing exactly that, performing heroically when, when given the opportunity. Right. And Dory Miller was ultimately commended for his, for his role there in Pearl Harbor for, for picking up that fifty caliber and firing it. Um, and then he got on another ship and didn't make it through the war. That's right. That's right. Doris Miller becomes a, um, an iconic figure for black Americans, in part because his service and his performance at Pearl Harbor makes it so clear that the military's policy of segregation is wrongheaded. That if Doris Miller can do this as a mess attendant without any real training, if he's willing to risk his life and willing to help save his, his white shipmates, it just shows that the, the kind of policies that the Navy has in place, the, the limited roles they've, they've assigned to black Americans are, are not beneficial and they're not taking full advantage of the, of the manpower that, that black citizens have to offer. You know, this might be a point to, to talk about the connection between the sociological changes that came with the war and building up the war effort and the civil rights movement that would come in the years after the war. This experience had an impact, didn't it? Absolutely. Uh, the civil rights movement, the, the groundwork for it had been laid in the, the decades before World War II, but World War II was really an accelerant. Uh, it forced black Americans to, to recognize that the kind of discrimination they encountered was something that they could and should organize to fight against. The, the infrastructure for that fight was really laid during the war. So the NAACP at the start of the war is a relatively small organization. But by the end of World War II, it has uh, more than 450,000 members and 1,000 branches all over the country. Much of that work is credited to Ella Baker, who's a pioneering grassroots activist. Her methods of organizing later get picked up by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, in the 1960s, and then even later by Black Lives Matter activists in the, the past years. But what she does is she tours all across the country uh, talking to local black communities, talking to everyday people about the importance of, of working together and organizing to fight for the issues that matter to them and their communities. And so that's where you see some of the, the most important initial steps to fight for voting rights and fight against school segregation, fight against job discrimination. Speaking even more largely, the kind of things that the war is about, freedom and democracy, helped to fuel demands of black veterans and citizens after the war. And so that whole generation of black veterans who fought in the war, they come back and start fighting for civil rights. As one veteran put it, they went from fighting in the European theater of operations to fighting in the Southern theater of operations. Yeah, and I'm sure they'd had experiences where, you know, if they might have grown up in a rural area of the South where whites were all of one 
mindset about race relations. They'd had broader experiences that made them realize it doesn't have to be this way. Exactly. So one of the consistent stories that black troops uh, describe is when they went to Europe, their treatment and experience talking to white people in, in Great Britain and France was entirely different than their experience with white Americans in places like Mississippi and Alabama. They felt like they were treated as equals for the first time. Um, so Meg Grevers, the famous civil rights activist, he's only 19 when he ends up uh, in Normandy, just, just days after the D-Day invasion. As his unit is pushing through France, he has a chance to spend some time with a French family. And he says it's the first time he's ever been treated as a full human being by a white person. And it opens his eyes to what's, what's possible. And so when he goes back to Mississippi, he, he believes that a different kind of world is possible, a different way of interacting across racial lines is possible. And that was true for, for thousands of, of black troops who served in the European theater. When the war was over, um, how were returning black veterans treated when they came home? One of the hardest parts about writing this book was reading these accounts of black veterans and the, the kind of disrespect they were shown when they returned to the country. They frequently describe getting off ships and being directed, uh, being immediately segregated as soon as they left the ship. That white troops were pointed one way and, and Negro troops were pointed the other way. And often they would use racial epithets to, to point black troops in, in that direction. They described having no parades to greet them when they got back and being routed through only the black section of town um, and being almost treated as though they were convicts when they, when they returned to the country. And then there were numerous examples of violence against black veterans that at least a dozen black veterans were killed or attacked, some while still wearing their, their military uniforms, in part because the white communities they often returned to uh, were, th were threatened by black veterans in their service. They recognized that these veterans were going to come back and be leaders in the civil rights movement. In that context, the military uniform in the service of black veterans was viewed as extremely dangerous, and it led to extremely hostile treatment for a lot of veterans when they returned home. Yeah, there's one point where you list... By name, 15 separate cases of black veterans who were murdered by white men, in many cases, police officers. And there were some cases where I think you said relatives advised returning black servicemen, don't wear your uniform, put on some overalls, right? The treatment was terrible. Uh, and, and trying to recount those stories uh, is it's harrowing even today to, to think about that these men had, had fought for their country. They were wearing the uniform of their country. They came home. And in this, what you just described, they had to change out of that uniform into to work clothes, into overalls, so that white townspeople wouldn't attack them while they were wearing their uniform. It's almost mind-boggling to think about, but that's the threat that a lot of white Americans saw when they looked at a, a black veteran in uniform. They saw this as something that was uh, almost like a, a red flag waved in front of a bull that was um, going to engender such feelings of animosity and anger that I think it reveals how deeply divided America was at the end of the war. Yeah. That one particularly galling moment you described is where they were in a base where German prisoners of war got to eat in the white, whites-only mess hall with the officers from the, America, from, from the white, white military officers, but the black soldiers were kept out. It's one of the most common stories that black veterans would tell. And it happened at bases all across the country where Nazi POWs were, were, were placed, is that Black veterans saw their white countrymen treating these these Nazi soldiers who just months earlier had been trying to kill Americans. These white Americans were treating the Germans infinitely better than they ever treated their fellow black troops. They were allowing them to eat in the same dining facilities, go to the same movie theaters, sit in the same parts of the train cars. And for black Americans, it, it 
it reveals that in many ways, Nazi racial policies and American racial policies were just two sides of the same coin. And that really leads them to question uh, the sincerity of what their fellow white soldiers have been fighting for, that if they were going to be this, this chummy and this friendly with, with actual Nazis who had been at war with them just months earlier, it really led them to, uh, to question real commitments to freedom and democracy at home. Well, Matthew Delmont, thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Historian Matthew Delmont speaking with Dave Davies. Delmont's new book is Half American, the epic story of African-Americans fighting World War II at home and abroad. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Sam Brigger. Mm-hmm.